0: Thank you so much. Boy, what a joy it has been for Jody and me. And just to thank you again, your uh, church, kindly through, through your pastor, uh, also brought Jody down with me, which is which was just a delight to be here together. We were able to see a bit of the beach yesterday and uh, some of the, the area that you live in, which is just so beautiful. So we have very much enjoyed. But mostly we've enjoyed just uh, conversing with you and getting to know some of you and Uh, We have experienced a real warm reception and hospitality, so thank you so much for your kindness to us. I hope you have session three, the notes, uh, session three, the work of the Holy Spirit in empowering sanctification. So as we're moving through this study of the Spirit, we've looked at the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament, that was uh, the the first session, and then the Spirit as He came upon Jesus and worked in Jesus' life with the... uh, Uh, ending that session by realizing that uh, Jesus would then give the Spirit to us, that is His followers, those who believe in Christ, would be the recipients of that Spirit as He went back to the Father. So we're in this age right now where we're awaiting the second coming of Christ, but He didn't leave us alone. He gave us another helper. He He gave us the Holy Spirit to, to dwell within us. And uh, there's really two main things, I think, that you, we can think about when we think of the work of the Spirit in the lives of believers, and that will be the two things that we look at this morning. This, this session will be the work of the Spirit to sanctify us, to, to make us more like Christ. So, sanctification, and then the, then the next hour, the work of the Spirit to empower us for service, service in the body of Christ and service as we bear witness in the world. So, sanctification is our subject right now. And it is interesting, when you look at the Bible's teaching on sanctification, you discover that sanctification is used in two different ways. Now, they're closely related. In fact, they're necessarily connected, but nonetheless, they are two different ways. One of them has to do with our position in Christ, that the minute we believe in Christ, not only are we justified by faith, that is, we're declared righteous, but we are also set apart. Unto God in Christ, we are made temples of the Holy Spirit. We are adopted into the family of God. That is, there's a whole series of things that take place that's, that is, comes under this banner of positional sanctification. Our position changes. We are now in Christ' people. and just as with justification, those things cannot change. They, they, cannot, they cannot increase or decrease. Uh, there, there's nothing that can change those realities, that we become children of God. We become temples of the Spirit. We become citizens of the kingdom and so on. So these elements of, of sanctification that involve our position take place the moment we put our faith in Christ. It's really an astonishing thing when you realize from Scripture how much happens when, when, when God draws a person to believe in Christ savingly Oh, my land. Declared righteous, justification, but also separated unto God in Christ. Positional sanctification happens right at that moment as well. That's that's one of the ways in which the Bible talks about sanctification. The other one has to do with our growth. Because we are set apart to God in Christ, we grow to become more like Christ, right? So you see that positional sanctification really is the outworking of did I say that right? Progressive sanctification, if I misspoke. Progressive sanctification is the outworking of positional sanctification. So, indeed, positional or sometimes called definitive sanctification is the basis for progressive or incremental sanctification. Another way to think of this is that through, through the New Testament, we see many, many indicatives used. Who we are. A Christian, do you know who you are? Those are indicatives that are the basis for the imperatives that come, how we are to live. So the imperatives flow out of the indicatives. Progressive sanctification flows out of positional sanctification. Well, let me just walk you through some of the elements of both of these. Uh, we can't look at all of it. It's just way too much to do in, in one, uh, one uh, session together. But I want you to see at least definitions and some key passages that relate to each of these. First of all, positional sanctification. You'll see on the handout there uh, my definition of this that I use in class when I teach on this. Positional sanctification is this, the present position or status of believers from the moment of their conversion, of being definitively and unalterably separated unto God in Christ. Thus they are called saints. Isn't that amazing? Saints meaning holy ones, indicating their irreversible new identity as those who are separated from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So this happens to us the moment we put our faith in Christ. Now, here are just a few passages which use sanctification in that way that speaks of the definitive work, the, the, the positional work that we are God's people at the moment we believe. Think, for example, in Acts 26:18, where Paul is describing his call from Christ, not only his conversion, but his call to bring, bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, Paul says this, or actually Jesus is saying this to Paul. He calls Paul to go to the Gentiles for what purpose? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Now, there that word sanctified doesn't mean they're made perfect in their characters. It doesn't mean they're, they're completely holy in their own natures. Oh, no, they've got a long ways to go. All of us know that as believers. We come to faith in Christ. We're not made perfect, but what we are is separated unto God in Christ. We, we, are, we are, as this verse says, uh, we, we turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan. Is that too strong? Dominion of Satan? Oh, no. No. We, we we really didn't realize this when we were unbelievers, but we were held in Satan's bondage, doing his will. Look sometime at Second Timothy two twenty six, if you want to see a text that, that bears this out. Second Timothy two twenty six. So indeed, we were held in captive to held captive to Satan, but now we are set free from that as we are God's people. So, indeed, that kind of sanctification. Here's another uh, couple statements that are really remarkable in the book of 1 Corinthians. And, you know, it's amazing. Of all the books, I mean, you might think this would be in Thessalonians where he commends these people for how they walk so faithfully and so on. No, this is the beginning of 1 Corinthians. What does Paul say? Chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified... Perfect passive participle, participle meaning this has taken place in the past and it has ongoing reality. It, It is a continuing reality for them. They have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, literally holy ones, holy ones by calling. Notice by calling, not by nature. Right So they're, they're not holy by nature. Read the book. I mean, they've got a long ways to go. but, but they are holy by calling. That is, they're called to be God's holy people. And that, that is irreversible. also in 1 Corinthians 6:11, after he described the way people lived in their sin in various different ways, then he says, "Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified." Here's an aorist passive participle, again, indicating this happened to you and it is definitive. But you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So it's interesting here, justification and and positional sanctification are seen to happen together which, of course, they do. They're different realities. One is a declarative act. This is justification, whereby we are declared righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Positional sanctification is our actual experiential reality. We have been transferred into the family of God, into the kingdom of Christ, uh, unto God in Christ. Colossians 1:13 and 14 does not use the word sanctification, but you hear the concept He rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So indeed, that transference, you know, and I think that idea, transferred into the kingdom of Christ, how many of you moved to Florida at some point in your life? Moved to Florida. Goodness gracious, look at that. Good luck, Florida, you know, with all the folks coming down here. Well, you know, and all of us have moved at some point in our lives somewhere. When you think about moving, the day you move to that new state, that new place you're going to live, you're now there. You're not more a resident of Florida tomorrow than you are today. You're not more a resident of Florida a week from now than you are today, the day that you move there. But you grow in what it means to be a resident there, right? You learn where the restaurants are. You learn where the roads go. You, you, you can navigate your way better over time. In other words, you experientially enter in more fully to the reality of where you have definitively moved you see it? So, indeed, this is the way it is. We are are transferred into the kingdom of Christ. That can't be changed. But we grow in what that means day by day as we serve Christ, as we grow in Christ and the like. Okay, I think I'll I'll leave it there in terms of the the overall picture. Now, here are some of the, some, not all by any means, but some of the themes that you see in the Bible that really describe our new position in Christ. This is under positional sanctification themes in scripture. And the first one is by far the most important. It's it's the most comprehensive, and that is our union with Christ. To be united with Christ means both to be united with him so that we are in Christ and also Christ is in us. It's kind of this dual penetration of the believer in Christ and Christ in the believer. We are united with him in an indissoluble union. Listen to John 15, where Jesus talks about this. He says, "'Abide in me, and I in you, "'as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself "'unless it abides in the vine. "'So neither can you unless you abide in me. "'I am the vine, you are the branches. "'He who abides in me, and I in him.'" Do you see both sides of that? We're we're in Christ, and Christ is in us. "'He bears much fruit, for apart from me "'you can do nothing.'" So indeed, we enter into this relationship in which we draw from Christ His strength, His His nutrients, uh, His wisdom, His knowledge, and that bears fruit then through our lives. So we're united with Him and He with us in this indissoluble union with Christ. Uh, Romans 6, 1 to 7, by the way, we will not look at all the passages I have here, there are too many, uh, but you can look at them later. I put them on here so you could look at other texts on your own if you wish to do so. Romans 6, uh, verses uh, 1 and following, Uh, Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? You, You know why he asked that question? Because he just ended chapter 5 saying, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, And so he worries that people might think, oh, well then, to see grace abound more, we must sin more. Just the opposite. Here's what he says, shall we continue to sin? No, may it never be. How shall those who died to sin still live in it? When did we die to sin? When did that happen? Keep reading. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Ah, That's where we died to sin. We were united with Christ in his death. When he died, by faith, we become united with the one who died to sin and rose to new life. So indeed, our union with Christ provides us the confidence of knowing not only that sin is forgiven, but sin is conquered. Not not only the penalty of sin removed, but the power, the dominion that sin had over us. Uh, now is under the control of Christ. Now, sin remains as an ongoing reality in this life. Thank the Lord in the new creation, it's gone. You know, there's no presence of sin anymore. I can't wait. I'm sure you're the same way, uh, because we fight with sin in this life, and we will until the end. But nonetheless, we have been freed from the bondage of sin, from slavery to sin, because of Christ's conquering power being raised from the dead. So indeed, Romans 6 is a great text that that, uh, helps us see that. Look also on the next page of your handout to Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. Paul writes here, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Do you see it? So indeed, this presence of Christ, which by the way, How is Christ present in us if he has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father? you know the answer to that? As he sends the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ comes and dwells with us. I I love a statement by J.I. Packer in his book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, where he says that the Spirit mediates to us the presence of Jesus. So indeed, we, we have Jesus' presence with us through the Spirit. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So indeed, we should remember that we are people who every moment of our lives, from the moment we believe in Christ, are united to him. We are in him and he is in us. And so all of the power of Christ is available to us. His victory over sin is available to us every moment as as we trust in him and look to him. Let's move on to the second theme adopted into God's family. And here we'll just look at two passages. The first one I want you to see is Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 7. This is really precious. In Isaiah 43, Paul is, I'm sorry, not Paul. This is Isaiah, is describing uh, the the children of Israel, the people of Israel, who are uh, adopted, as it were, into the family of God, uh, and and, uh, redeemed by him and made his children. And he says in verse 1 to them, do not fear, Says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, who, he who formed you. O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Now look at this. I have called you by name. You are mine. It's the idea of a parent naming a child, right? Uh, and, and the tenderness that is involved in that, the intimacy, but also the ownership. Who has the right to name a child? The parents do. I mean, every now and then, Jody and I go to a church where we have lots of babies born. We, you know, A lot of young families from the seminary who are at our church, and every now and then a name is announced of a newborn, and we look at each other and say, really? Are you sure you want to do that? It's a long life ahead, you know, so… But, you know, you know, on the other hand, we look at each other again and say, well, so, what, so who cares what we think? You know, I mean, the parents are the ones who have the right to name them. And, and it's, it's because they have jurisdiction over them. They have, they have ownership of them. That's the point that's being made here by, by God. He says, you are my people. I call you by name. You are mine. Right? You see that? But then, look at verse 7. Not only does he call them by name, here, verse 7, he says, everyone who is called by my name. Ah, whom I have created for my glory. That's different, isn't it? And it's like, it's like this. When my parents named me, they gave me my name, Bruce. That, that's verse 1. I called you by name, so they named me Bruce. But then verse 7, they also gave me their name, where? Right? So I bear the family name. My dad reminded me of that a few times in my teenage years. You know, Bruce, don't forget When you go out there, you're always aware, and and you're going to represent the family. Okay, Dad, I'll remember that. So, you know, but, you know, this is so much bigger, so much bigger. We bear the family name of God in in the way we relate to one another, in, in the ways in which we serve one another. As we bear witness in the world, we are always representing the family name of God. It's incredible, isn't it? Here's the other passage we'll look at besides Isaiah, Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. Paul writes, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those under the law, so that they might receive what? The adoption as sons, because you are sons, God has poured forth the spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, an heir through God. So, indeed, the, the joy of realizing we are brought into a relationship in which we are not only uh, the, 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 the servants of the Lord the the friends as it were of God, but the very children of God, sons of God, and by the way, women believers don't begrudge the fact that you're referred here and a few other places in the New Testament as sons. Don't begrudge that, because remember the context here: you're, you're an heir. Who is an heir? In an heir in uh, Israel, who who receives the inheritance? The sons, right? Not the daughters. So indeed, sons are are, is the metaphor that's used here of all of us because we we are brought into the full inheritance of Christ. All the riches of Christ that He has won for us in, in His work on the cross is ours by faith because we are made sons of God. Incredible. Next category. We are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Citizens of the kingdom of Christ. Again, just two passages, the first two that are listed there. Colossians 1.13, I love this text. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. And honestly, we, we have no idea how bad that is. Under complete deception, uh, led by a liar who wants only to bring us to destruction. That's what it means to be in the dominion of Satan. And transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. The one who reigns over us to bring us life, to bring us joy, to bring us into His presence forever and ever, never again to experience sorrow or pain anymore. That one who is the victor over all sin were brought into His kingdom. What a privilege it is! First Thessalonians 2.12 takes it one step further. So, that you should walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, indeed, the the implication here of how we walk, because look at who we are. Christian, do you know who you are? Do you know that you are united with Christ? Do you know that you are adopted into the family of God? Do you know that you are a citizen of the kingdom? I mean, honestly, I think if we rehearsed these things more often in our minds so that they were more front, front of our minds instead of back there in the recesses where, where we're forgetting them, right? If we remember them more often, no doubt it would impact how we live to remember who we are in Christ and here, citizens of this kingdom so we walk in a manner worthy of this God who in His grace and kindness has called us to be in that kingdom. Moving on, number four, temples of the Holy Spirit on page three of your notes. Temples of the Holy Spirit. And here again, we'll just look at two passages, the first two that are listed there, and you'll see why in a moment. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul writes to the Corinthians, do you not know? that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, this is interesting because this text in context is clearly indicating the assembly as a whole, the congregation as a whole. Do you, not, do you not know that you, plural, are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you? So there is a sense in which the church as a whole is the temple of God. And what a vivid image that is. Temple in the Old Testament was a place where God dwelt and manifest His glory. Just think think of that as a definition for the church, the place where God dwells and manifests His glory. That's what church is. Incredible, isn't it? So we become the temple. As, as we gather together, the spirit is here, the Spirit is at work to bring glory to Christ, to magnify His name. That's who we are when we gather together. Temple of the Holy Spirit. But then chapter six of First Corinthians. Paul says this, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know? Boy, it's amazing how many times Paul asked that, right? Do you not know? Don't don't you understand who you are? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So not only are we collectively the temple, each one of us individually has the Spirit dwelling within. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this, Paul says, is why sexual immorality is so heinous in God's sight, such a violation of of His ways for us, because we're actually violating the temple of God, he says, where the Spirit dwells within. So, Temples of the Holy Spirit, the place where God dwells and manifests His glory, where, where His very character is stamped upon us, that is who we are now because we are in Christ. And then, uh, let's move on now to the, uh, the next area of progressive sanctification. There are other things we can look at for positional, but I picked out some of the most important uh, of those as, as we consider who we are in Christ But now, let's move on to progressive sanctification. Here's my definition of this aspect of sanctification, our growth in Christ. This this refers to the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in joining the believer's willful participation to strengthen our newly imparted disposition toward holiness, freeing us increasingly from the power of sin, and renewing us increasingly into the image of Christ. Notice a couple things about that definition. One is, it's the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, brings us to faith, who creates faith within us now and and then fills us as we are temples of the Holy Spirit, now works within us to make us more like Christ. He's at work in us, uh, you know, until... uh, Uh, Until we are with Christ, when we are made fully like Him, He's at work constantly making us more like uh, Christ Himself, which was the Father's design for us. I don't have this passage on here, but you think of Romans 8 29, whom He foreknew, He predestined. This is the Father, whom the Father foreknew, He predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of His Son. I mean, there is no greater privilege than to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this is what the Spirit does within us. So it's a continuous operation of the Holy Spirit. But notice the next phrase, enjoining the believer's willful participation. That is, this is something in which when the Spirit works, it doesn't make us passive, just the opposite. When the Spirit works, it renders us active in the very process of sanctification. Uh, John Murray uh, ha- has this wonderful statement that, that is, we work because God works. That's how sanctification works. We work because God works. So as the Spirit works within us, it doesn't mean, oh, we don't have anything to do. It's, th- it's God who's doing this. Oh, no, we are involved in it because He is at work in us. He activates us in the process of sanctification. And then it, it, it results in both increasing freedom from sin… So that's the negative side, but also increasing likeness of Christ reproduced within us, the positive side. Both those things have to happen. You can't become more like Christ without becoming less like sin, right? It just can't be. Uh, You you, you can't be less like sin without becoming more like Christ. These two things go together uh, in our sanctification. Now, here are just a few passages that speak of sanctification in, in uh, in the progressive sense, Notice in Romans 6.19, Romans 6.19, Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, that's when you were unsaved, when you were an unbeliever, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in... You see it? Resulting in sanctification. So there is a sanctification that awaits you as you grow to be more like Christ, as you present your members more as slaves of righteousness. Uh, Colossians 1 Paul writes, "...so that you may walk in a manner worthy of Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light." So again, the word sanctification isn't there, but the concept is there in which this growth takes place increasingly, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power and so on. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Do you hear that progressive element? Are being transformed into the same image, that is the image of Christ, from glory to glory. That is, in incrementally increasing degrees of glory. This is from the Lord, the Spirit. So this is a fascinating verse for many reasons. One is, Lord is used both of Christ and of the Spirit. And so it is one of the places where... The deity of the Spirit is confirmed because he is, he is set at the same level of Christ who is God. The Spirit likewise is God. But, but the Spirit's work is primarily to focus our attention on Christ, beholding as in a mirror the glory of Christ. And as we see him, this principle is at work within us. You know what it is? This is worth gold right here. So listen up. This principle is God has so made us that we instinctively, naturally seek to become like whatever it is we esteem most highly. Let me say it again. God has so made us that we instinctively, naturally seek to become like whatever it is we esteem most highly. What we honor, what we treasure, what, 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 we, uh, what we relish, what we love, Boy, this helps you understand the great commandment in a new way, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what happens to you? You long to be more like the one you love, right? So here is the Spirit, putting Christ before us so that we behold His glory. And when we see the richness and the greatness of Christ, what happens in us? We long to become more like that, so we're transformed in increasing ways from glory to glory, uh, this is from the Lord, the Spirit. So I think this is why we have four Gospels in the Bible. I think so. Because, you know, uh, the, the Father and the Spirit, both who want to focus the attention on Christ, uh, just wa- wanted to make it so clear to us, the glory of Christ. So, so we have a, an account by Matthew, and then, and then Mark, Mark provides his contribution, and Luke provides his, and John, he so we can see from four different angles more of the glory of Christ and, and, uh, and become more like Him through that. Uh, let's see. Let me just mention one more, and that is in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, where Paul has commended the Thessalonians. Just in the previous verses, he says, you're, you're doing great, but I want you to excel still more, he says. And here's what he says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification... That is, you abstain from sexual immorality so indeed they are to to uh, live lives in which they are exhibiting increasing sanctification and one of the key ways back then that sanctification increases is a key way now and that is becoming increasingly sexually pure that we resist sexual temptations as part of what it means to grow in christ it, it, is a, it is an issue that has always been the case for human beings, but, uh, it, and it is one that is especially prominent for us today. This is the will of God for you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, m- members of this wonderful church. Your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Hear the word of the Lord on this. Okay, let's take a look at just a few of the themes real briefly of sanctification. First is this idea of divine and human agency that go together in sanctification. Now, this is not true with justification. God just declares us righteous. It is not true with positional sanctification. God just makes us His children, transfers us into His kingdom, gives us the Holy Spirit, right? So all these things happen in justification and positional sanctification unilaterally by the work of God. But progressive sanctification, oh no, we're involved in it. We we are activated by God in this. And here are just a a few statements. I'm going to just mention two of them here. 1 Corinthians 15.10, where Paul writes, "...but by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain." but I labored even more than all of them, that is, the rest of the apostles. This isn't braggadocia, it's just a fact. You know, Paul sacrificed far more than any other of the apostles. I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You see that? So Paul realizes all the exertion of Energy and effort that he put into his missionary labors. All, all of the strain and stress and, and, and the afflictions that he endured. He felt them deeply. How would you not feel receiving five times 39 lashes? Indeed, you feel it. But he says, I, I was able to do those things, not of myself, but because the grace of God was with me. So God's grace working in and through him. So again, his, the power of God working within us doesn't cancel out our participation. It activates our participation. It energizes us in the work that we're called to do. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is the second one we'll look at here. All right, so then, my beloved, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, my goodness, what a a very strong imperative. Work this out with fear and trembling. I mean, put your heart into it. Realize how important this is. This is a sober responsibility. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, aren't you glad there's not a period right there? It's just up to you. You better get at it now. There's not a period there. Oh, my goodness, it continues. Look how it continues. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So how can we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Only because God is at work in us to give us the will to do us, to to, to do those things, to provide for us the strength to work in the ways we need to do for our own sanctification. So indeed, we and God together, and yet, ultimately, it's all the work of God. Because what can we do apart from His work in us? Like Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? So it's the work of God within us that accomplishes this. Okay, now the last page of your notes. And I have here three categories of mind and heart and will. And let me give give you the big picture here in terms of progressive sanctification. The big picture is this. That when God gives us truth by the Spirit, it is that truth that is the primary means that He uses to bring us uh, growth in Christ. It it is truth that that is so central uh, to our growth in Christ. But God intends the truth that He gives us to travel, to travel first into our heads, from our heads into our hearts, and then from our hearts through our hands in activities, in, in the work that we do, in the, in the ways in which we will and choose to do what we do. And the order is really important. You have to go through the head first for the heart to be impacted, then for the hands to, to work in the ways that are the natural expression of how God has remade us. There is no direct co- connection from head to hands. Now, I learned this model when I was growing up in the church I grew up in, that the, the basic model was right thinking results in right living. And I, I believed it because that's what I was taught, but I read Jonathan Edwards later, and I realized this misses something, that there are many, many people who know the right thing to do, but they don't do it, right? You think of, of a typical addict you know, he knows better than, than to take more drugs or alcohol or whatever the case might be. But, uh, but boy, he's, he, he's, not, he's not acting according to what he knows. What has to happen is that knowledge has to have an impact on our deepest affections, I'll say just a minute, in a minute, what those are our deepest affections, which then change us from the inside out. And when we are changed in our affections, what we love, what we cherish, what, what we value with, with the greatest fervor, those affections then result in living out not, not necessarily what we merely have known, but now what we know and love. We do live out what we love far more consistently than we live out merely what we know. So it is so important, my friends, that we realize that God intends His truth to travel first into our heads, but then make the connection to our hearts and the affections. Then we live in different ways as a result of that. So let me just walk through this with you in just a couple minutes as we close. Just one verse from each, each text here, each, each category. First of all, transform mind. Isn't this the point that Paul makes? You, know, you think of 11 chapters in the book of Romans, and now chapter 12 begins the practical application of all that truth. And what does he say in Romans 12 verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So indeed, the mind becomes the central faculty that God has given to us that that provides the resource for transformation. You know, Jonathan Edwards likens the mind to a fireplace which is stocked full of wood. The wood in the fireplace is like truth that we put into our minds. And, of course, that truth better really be true, right? Because if it's not right, if it's not correct, my goodness, we're going to have affections that are remade according to false ideas and live in ways then that are wrong, right? So how important it is, you, you folks are blessed to be at this church. I, I know you know that, but, oh, you are, with all that is available to you to get that truth that really is true into your heads, That is so important. But then as as Edward says, but having fire in the, I'm sorry, having wood in the fireplace doesn't provide the fire. You need need that wood ignited. What's that? Affections. So then affections, number three, transformed heart or affections. Uh, Affections are different from emotions. Emotions are fickle, easily changeable. You know, one word from somebody can, can take you from, you know, ha- having a happy day to feeling absolutely horrible. If, if, emotions can change on a dime, as they say. But, but, but affections are resilient, they're, they're stubborn, they don't change easily. They're, they're the, really the core of what we love most deeply and hate, what, what we cherish uh, mo- mo- most uh, uh, gloriously. and and what we despise and those affections take time to be retrained it takes truth hitting them over and over and over until you not only see the truth of the truth you begin to see the beauty the wisdom the goodness of that truth and then your affections are changed that takes time for that to happen but that's what needs to take place within us so that for example psalm 16:11 This will happen in you. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So you realize, yes, it's in the presence of God. It is with Him and His truth. That's what brings me true satisfaction in life. That's what is truly good. That's where life truly is found. This is the pathway of joy is following the commandments of Christ. Didn't Jesus say that? I I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. These commandments that I give to you, um, I I give them so so that my joy may may be in you and your joy may be made full indeed. So that that affections where we grasp the beauty, the glory, the wonder, the majesty, the awesome uh, wisdom of those truths is what our affections are changed. We grow to love more as God loves we grow to hate more as God hates, and so we are changed. And then that affects our will. So indeed, Romans six thirteen. We have this imperative: Do not go on presenting the members of your body as to, to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present your to, to yourselves to God as those alive from your dead. From the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so you realize this is where life is found. This is where you will find your true satisfaction. And so you live out more naturally what you have come to love. So, my friends, sanctification. It's a glorious work that God is is at work doing in us. First of all, to separate us unto God in Christ, which it can never be changed. What a what a joy it is to know that. We are His children, citizens of His kingdom, and so on. But then because of that, to grow increasingly in becoming more like Christ as we learn of Him, see His beauty, see His glory, learn His truth, love His truth, and then live it out in greater with greater consistency so that God indeed is honored by the way we live our lives and, and, uh, and, and we experience the joy of that life together. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning to be able to look at these wonderful truths of your work within us by your Spirit. How grateful we are that we are on this side of the day of Pentecost and have been recipients of that Spirit who is at work. May we walk in the Spirit and yield to the Spirit and experience more of His work in us uh, by your grace, for your glory, and for our good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.